Welcome to the new Israel Bible Podcast. I am Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This is the final installment of my conversation with Pinhas Shor, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at Israel Bible Center. We conclude our discussion on the book of Revelation on a positive note. No more beasts and dragons and oppression. This week we discuss the Alpha and Omega, lions and lambs, and we start where we left off last week with the idea that Revelation is authentically Jewish and it presents concepts that are based in the world of the prophets, which are based on the words of the Torah. I want to explore this idea a little bit more. So let's get back to the discussion on the wild and mysterious, confusing and encouraging book of Revelation. One of the things that you continue to mention throughout the course on Revelation, even within its Jewish context, is you pick up the theme of the prophets and that there is something about the book that is prophetical and which almost, I would say, needs its own definition because sometimes people understand what prophecy is, which mm -hmm. is often going back and digging through the Torah and Mm -hmm. and then reinterpreting in its time. And Revelation seems to be doing something that is like that as well. So um, when we look at the book of Revelation, are we trying to say that everything, the prophetic nature of Revelation, so speaking to those, time, to those people in that time, in those places, that it's actually done, completed and done, or are there still things that may happen in the future? And how do we know how we're interpreting? Oh yeah, this is a good one. This is a good one. So my answer to questions like that is always both end, not either or, because it's true. I mean, that's my approach to yeah. life in most in most situations, yeah. anyways. Both end. Um, so is the book about the past? Yes, much of Revelation is about the past. It's about the events of that day. You know, whether we're talking about the great beast and what that beast means and who that is. Yes, it's it's how the events of Revelation are happening in the day of Revelation. In fact, the book of Revelation says that the time is at hand. And now it tells you, yeah, this is about today. So, like, how else am I supposed to read that? Except the author tells me multiple times, this is happening right now. So I gotta believe him. But then there, of course, there are aspects of Revelation mm. where you're clearly not about now. Why? Because the grand visions of the heavenly Jerusalem coming from the sky, where, where is it? You know, I'm not right. seeing it. I'm not living it. You know, like if this is the reality already here and now. I'm not experiencing yeah. it. I'm not able to tap into it. So I realize there's some things are not there. The great judgment, sorry, hasn't happened yet. People are still living lawlessness and doing all sorts of things, right? right. So, you know, we're still suffering. And so you get a very clear sense that some parts are already done mm -hmm. and other parts are yet to come. And so, yes, there are visions of the future. And this is where people get carried away. And, this, and we got to be careful with that. 
Prophecy is not prediction of the future. What? Shocker. <laughs> prophecy is not a fortune telling. You know, uh, it, it, that's not its primary purpose. Yeah. There is an element of foretelling yeah. as a means of testing the prophet and testing as a means of verifying that the person who's speaking is actually speaking mm -hmm. from God because only God knows the future. So if you're in a future you know, foretelling business, eventually you're going to make a mistake because you don't know all things. It's impossible for a human to know all things. So unless you have some supernatural revelation, you're going to mess it up. You know, God knows all future because he controls future. He's got it you know, wrapped around his finger. So that's, that's the proof of the prophet is that he's in touch with the one who controls all things. Therefore, he's never going to mislead you. And so there's that element of foretelling um, you know, but a lot of it is foretelling. A lot of it is just telling people how, how things are, or actually pointing back. A lot of what the prophets do, you know, the basic function of the prophet is return back to Torah, return right. back to the things you've had before. Yeah. I told, you know, God told you what to do. God told you how to live right. You've messed up. You live wrong. Go back, go back to the way things used to be. Yeah. You know, the prophets always point to a more idyllic time when Israel had better relationship with God when, you know, children of Israel were eating manna in a wilderness or whatever it is. There's imagery that always points you back to the more idyllic time, more naive time, uh, more innocent times for Israel. So the same thing here uh, in Revelation is you're always going to have pointing you back. So the whole discussion about idolatry and meeting, eating meat, you know, polluted by idols, you know, and, and criticizing whether it be you know, Bilam or, or Jezebel or whoever it is that's mm -hmm. in there that's the stirring the pot, sort of saying, creating trouble, right? It, these are all references to the Torah. It's all about going back. All, all, all the writer is saying is that the sins that we're sinning now are the same exact sins we're sinning then. Look what happened in the Torah to those people who did those right. things, and let's learn our lessons, and let's, move for, let's not move forward in that same trajectory because that's what's going to happen right. to us. So how, you know, so that's, a, to me, that is just as prophetic as telling you that something that that the Jerusalem is going to come out of the sky, you know, because right. that's the same type of function. It's just like I'm taking you back by saying, "Don't go this way," you know, yeah. return to the Lord, and then and and then me giving you a glimpse of a bright, glorious future, you know, is just a confirmation that I yeah. know what I'm talking about and I have the authority from God. And then, and then you see those things fulfill, you know, and you're saying, you know what, the prophet is a prophet. He is right. He is true. He promised to that these things will come, and they have come true. And that's straight out of the Torah. I mean, the test of the prophet is his own words. If his own words don't come true, then he should be stoned, right? So that's the idea. Again, that's a, yeah. you'd think that everybody would know it. You'd think that everybody would understand it because it's so clear in, you know, in the Torah. But, but again, sometimes it gets missed out. And a lot of times, yeah. you know, pop culture uh, takes it away again. Because yeah. what we think of a prophet in the English language in our world that we live today is not what the biblical imagery yep. of the prophet is. Yep. <laughs> and we get misled. Is it strange for you to hear that the primary role of the prophet was not to predict things? I find that when I teach the prophetic text in the Bible, people are surprised to realize that the prophet's message was primarily for the people of his or her time. And a huge part of the prophetic role was reinterpreting the Torah for a changing society. The prophets called out the ways that people's behavior was co-opted by the dominant culture and alternatively reminded the people of the blessings of living in covenant with God. 
This is true of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, and this is what is true about the book of Revelation. This is where the courses on the Torah through Israel Bible Center are so valuable. They give you a great foundation from which to build an understanding of the rest of the text. From the story of the Hebrew fathers in Genesis to the essential elements of Deuteronomy and then everything in between. You can sign up for those courses at israelbiblecenter.com. Now, often related to the idea of prophecy are ideas of the promised Messiah figure. In Revelation, we get a dual theme of a suffering Messiah, but also a victorious Messiah. So I asked Pinchas what the author of Revelation was trying to communicate with his audience about Jesus as the Messiah by combining such seemingly polar opposite characteristics. Well, in my opinion, he's just trying to connect the dots. I mean, uh, uh, in the Jewish tradition, there, as you mentioned, there's already an understanding of the suffering Messiah, victorious Messiah. Although, of course, a lot of people look at it and they say, well, that means two different messiahs, right? right. And so what John does uniquely, and that is, that is definitely him, is he says, oh, by the way, it's one and the same, just two different times. And nobody, nobody in the Jewish world really thought of it that way. Because they say, if he's a suffering Messiah, then he's a suffering Messiah. If he's a victorious Messiah, then he's a victorious Messiah. But being both at the same time, that's a novel idea. That I do not find in any Jewish literature at all. That where you just basically combine both concepts and say, and he's just suffering now and victorious later. And that yeah. is a complete new innovation. So like I said, so yeah, you see that. Uh, so the, the image of the lamb, for example, in Revelation the lamb that was slain, it says, but he's standing there. Like, if he was slain, he was slain, and he should be dead. Slain lamb, we all know what it looks like. Yeah. Dead. But the lamb is that was slain is actually still standing there. So there's that idea of a slain lamb being revived. Hmm. And that lamb is, of course, the focus. That lamb is the Messiah. So... And then it starts talking about the lion, and the next thing you know, like, are we talking about the lion or the lamb? What's going on? Just, did the lamb just turn into a lion, you know? So there's a little bit of that imagery that's being tossed around that is fantastical, and it makes you realize that you are experiencing heavenly vision, that this is not reality, and these are all representative images of something else. And, of course, they represent a Messiah, yeah. who is both the lion and the lamb. He is the slain one, but he's the victorious one. So there's that, that duality. You definitely see that. You see that in rabbinic literature. You see that in, in, in ancient uh, Jewish writings, that idea of duality. And then you see, you see it in Revelation as well. So that's, again, always brings me back around to the idea that it's a Jewish book. Revelation is a very Jewish book. Um, it yeah. plays on the same themes. It just interprets them in a different way. For the followers of Jesus, the connection point that this is what we have always known but this is what we didn't see, but now we do, hence revelation. That's something revealed, something concealed that is revealed. Right. So uh, kind of following some of that, another very popular image, since you mentioned the lamb and the lion, and it's not so much an image as much as a phrase, uh, the alpha and omega is mm -hmm. also something that people pull from and use all the time from revelation, although Potentially, and you touch on this in your course, pe potentially people are using it incorrectly because we will talk about Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, but is that actually what Revelation is saying? 
Well, for anybody who wants to understand alpha and omega, <clears throat> again, the pop culture view would be, you know, al there's alpha, there's omega, and we know what it means because that's Jesus. That's what everyone's going to hear. That's the sermon they heard. And yep. But if you read it on your own and you yep. take every reference to alpha and omega in Revelation, all of a sudden there's different people talking. And how can you have Jesus, alpha and omega, and then, and then right there he's separate? He's not. You know, is he or is he not? You know, and so all of a sudden you realize that there's that separation. Who is the Alpha Omega? Who, you know, who was and is and is to come is the question, you know. Yes. Well, and that's the questions you have to answer. So one thing that is not clearly spelled out in the book of Revelation, and you would see this in all other Jewish books as well, uh, and that has to be with in sync with the time of that era, is that you're not going to have a very clear expression of trinitarian doctrine you're not going to have that whole personhood splitting this is person number one this is person number two this is person number three you're not going to have that why yeah. because they're all kind of melded and blended together mm -hmm. uh and they mixed and they're blurry and they kind of cross over all the time but then they're distinct mm -hmm. every time you will you will see you will see messiah distinct from god who sits on the throne because God who sits on the throne, and then there's the lamb right next to the throne. Well, if the lamb is God, then why is the lamb not on the throne? Or who's on the throne if it's not the lamb? <laughs> so, like, you're like, wait a minute, there's two. You actually don't, you won't find three. You'll find two all the time, over and over and over, because that is a feature of a Jewish literature. There's that idea of duality. You know, uh, sometimes I like to talk about a two-seater throne, you know. That's what it is. I've never like heard that. That's awesome. It's, a, it's like a two-seater throne, and because uh, because there's the because there's the throne of God, which yeah. is obviously the throne of God. He's you know he's the beginning and the end. He's the he's all those things. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's all those things, right? And then you have on the right hand of God, mm -hmm. the second seat, right? Yeah. And that's where the Lamb is. That's where the Son of Man is. This is where the bright shining star is. And that's where all those other references, you know, uh, the one who overcame, you know, that. And, and you realize that we're not talking about the same person anymore, because if it was the same person, that would be a one-seater throne. But it's not. It always two. Not three, by the way. Hmm. Not three. Because the third seat is not there at all. In fact, there's very little mention of hmm. The third component, sort of say. And so people keep looking for Trinity and they don't find Trinity, they get disappointed. And other people get upset and they say, ah, oh, you know, all of this whole Trinity, it's all nonsense. Well, it's a historical doctrine that worked its way out much later. Okay. Yeah. But you're not going to, don't look for it in, in Revelation because it hasn't been worked out in that era. And they could not have been talking about those things because those things haven't been right. really articulated yet. Nobody right. thought of it that way, not right. in that moment. And so people always look for confirmations of their faith because it makes us feel comfortable. Uh, we want to know that we're in the right yeah. place. Uh, but Revelation is not going to be able to confirm Trinity to people. And yeah. I just don't want people to get confused about it. It's just Jewish <laughs> literature. It's Jewish literature. Yeah. And it's too early for that. And there's something about approaching ancient literature where, in my head, I think of it a little bit more open-handedly. Things didn't have to fit in very particular boxes. Mm -hmm. And I think since we are all living in a time post-scientific revelation, uh, revolution, we have an expectation that things have very clearly defined boundaries and rules mm -hmm. that they act within. And 
they didn't necessarily feel that way. So things can morph and change and it can be a lamb one moment and then it can change into something else. And it doesn't have to fit these laws of physics or anything because that just wasn't an expectation. That wasn't the way that they looked at their literature or viewed the world around them, which makes reading a piece of literature from their time really quite challenging. We have to adapt to their mindset. This is the biggest challenge that we have in reading books like that is we can't, I always tell people, you can't unknow what you know. And that is our curse. It's a blessing and a curse. We're blessed that we know so much. It's also a curse because we cannot go back and pretend we don't know it. It keeps informing us. And so uh, we use this, you know, in historical field called bracketing, Mm -hmm. where you intentionally bracket your knowledge and you become conscious of your bias and you say, I'm going to set this aside. And every time this bias creeps out and tries to inform me, I'm going to push it back into those brackets and say, I'm not going to let you interp- allow me to interpret it through, through this lens. And so it's almost impossible to get rid of your bias 100%. But I think you can keep it in check to a degree. And I tell people, if, if we can check our modern knowledge and put it on the shelf, that would be great. You know, uh, and, and it's just, it's challenging in that way, but that's what I see. And you're absolutely right when you're saying that we can't, you know, it's, it, they are much more loose. Hmm. They're much more loose with their words. It doesn't have to be precise. We're people who come from scientific revolution. We, we're precise for us. Things have to be this yeah. way. Yeah. We have definitions of definitions. We do. They, they don't, they don't. And, and, and we have to operate in their world. And that's why we struggle so much. But if we can, to whatever degree we can get closer to their world, that's where the payback is. Yeah. That's where the benefit of being able to see the picture clearly all of a sudden you're saying, yeah. now I see how they saw it. And now I got that true intent. And, and, and only then I can translate that to what it means for my world, what it means for my family, what it means for my life. Yeah. You know, but not before. Because right. before I, I completely misunderstood it. You know, I think this is what it is, but it's not. So I walk away with a different message, and therefore I can't apply a message that I did not understand or misunderstood. And and that to me that's the most that's the biggest tragedy. Uh, when people try to tragedy is when people try to make theology out of something that was never really meant to be theological. Yeah. Actually, now I think that's to me that's scary. You know, uh, because people are trying to build theology and they try to build their lives. They're trying to yeah. build a lifestyle and you know, like halacha. Uh, you know, like, how do you live your daily life? You know, people look for things yeah. to do in a book of Revelation. And I'm like, that's not the kind of book it is. You don't look for lifestyle changes based on the visions that John sees. Yes, there's teaching. There's moral teaching. There's ethical teaching in there. There's, there are behavior patterns that we can possibly see. But that's not what that book is designed for. We already have a book of laws that actually tells us exactly how to live our life. Can we just reflect on that? And use this as an addition to to that, rather than that as the primary, you know, the right. New Testament Torah, so to say, right? right. And then right. forget that other stuff. And, and that is a big mistake. So this is where theology gets so cumbersome. It gets so warped out of shape because we're creating this new creature, this new hybrid of something that really wasn't there for them. And it doesn't really work for us either. Yeah. So it's weird. There is one final issue with how people misinterpret the book of Revelation that just really gets under my skin. So I cannot help but ask Pinchas to clarify ideas about the new heaven and the new earth. 
I think this confusion stems from not understanding the Jewish background of the text. And as we've been saying from the beginning, some confusion is generated by pop culture. But we need to give this concept careful consideration because how we interpret the idea of a new heaven and a new earth has a drastic influence on our perception of the world and our role in it now. Do we have to pay attention to the health of the ecology around us? Or can we ignore it? Because this earth is passing away and we are going to get a new one. The lack of concern for the physical world around us is definitely not an Israelite worldview. So where is the confusion coming from? And what does the book of Revelation actually say? So the the whole idea of new heaven and new earth, you know, is there's several misunderstandings over there I think that are important to address. Uh, I think there's a preoccupation with heaven that exists, especially in the Christian world, where everything is about heaven. It's about going to heaven, uh, having a relationship with Jesus, having been saved, all this stuff. It's all about going to heaven. In the Jewish world, that is such a weird idea because it's all about living now. You know, when, when I get to heaven, this when I get to heaven, we all eventually, eventually we all meet God in our own way whenever that time comes. What matters is how I live now, because when I get there and it's that moment to kind of for my account of my life, standing there before my creator and say, how well did I do with the gifts that I was given? He's not going to ask me, oh, great, you made it to heaven. You know, you got to the final destination. What you did before doesn't really matter because I'm going to wipe it all clean. You know, actually, you know. If you read from Genesis, Adam was given this world as a dominion to protect, to cherish, to develop, to till, to manage. You know, we're, we're the general superintendents of this world that God created, yet we fail in that mission and everything goes wrong. And that's Genesis. That's the beginning of the chapters. You know, that's the whole story of this debacle. And, and, and so everything goes wrong because of that. And, and our entire history now follows this trajectory. So now, Imagine the restoration of things. Well, in the restoration of things, obviously things go back the way they're supposed to be, where we are managing it well. So the whole idea of not managing it well now or not taking care of the earth, you know, is a bit of a problematic. But when you have a futuristic view where it's all about future, okay, now doesn't matter, okay? I meet people every day who save every penny they have for retirement and they never retire. They never make it to retirement age. They have a heart attack and that's it. It's sad, but that happens. But somebody who has a very futuristic outlook, they always think about the future. They don't take the time to live now and today. The whole preoccupation with the future, kind of like what's going to happen in, in is, is a very, to me, is a very Eastern Western thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, totally it, agree. Absolutely. Very, like people, you've, you've been to the East, you understand how people live. They live day to day. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, and in the ancient world, even more so, you know, you got mm-hmm. paid daily. You got paid daily. Give us today our daily bread. We don't say give us today our bread for the next month, you know, or two weeks or whatever, however long it is. It's all about daily life. And and that is such a weird concept for people living today in a modern world. Uh, We struggle with that. And especially in the individualistic societies and things like that, we're kind of self-reliant, self-sufficient. We're being taught these values. But Right. Uh, you know, in the in the Eastern world, it's like it's all about, you know, today, now, here. So what's going to happen in heaven is great and wonderful and important, but not as important what's happening to me right now. And so the same thing with in Revelation, you know, that orientation of heavenly Jerusalem coming down. When people actually think they're going to go to heaven, but I keep trying to tell them, I said, listen, 
that heavenly Jerusalem comes down and rests on earth. Do you realize that? That, you know, you go to visit and you're, and you're back on earth. Like, so we weren't made for heaven. We weren't created to live in heaven. You know, uh, I like to go, you know, diving in, 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 in the sea and snorkel and do all kinds of things, but I wasn't made for that. Uh, that's why I have to wear a mask and have a breathing apparatus. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I, I can't, I was not live, meant to live among the fishes, even though I love it. You know, yeah. so the same thing about heaven is that we're not heavenly creatures. We're earthly creatures. We're created for earth on earth to be managers of earth. And so that's our destiny. Our destiny is not heaven. Well, a lot of people think that heaven is the final stop. And the truth is, if it's just a visit, it's like a little vacation, and then you're back to earth. And so the Jerusalem comes down, it, it's there. So not messing up the earth we live in, even though God is going to renew it, uh, I think it's more of a you know, moral, ethical imper- imperative. And, and I think in many ways, it is God's design. We're supposed to do our job, and our job is to take care of it. I mean, how, what if we took that same approach with, you know, raising a family or taking care of a house? You know, oh, you know, this house is not going to stand here for 250 years. I'm only going to be alive, what, 70, 80? So let me just take care of it a little bit. And if it, if the roof falls in after I'm gone, then whatever, let it be. You know, I mean, and that just transforms to the whole yeah. philosophy of everything. That we like that, you know, do we want to leave something behind? In the Jewish tradition, the conceptual world is so different. I mean, in the Talmud, it says that we we plant a tree for, for that we will never see the fruit off. You know, yeah. you plant a, a man plants a carob tree, and a passerby asks him and says, "You're seventy years old. You will never see the fruit of the tree. You know how long it's going to take for this tree to mature and for actually carry, have carobs." And he says, "I'm not planting it for me. As my father planted for me, so am I planting for my children." Yeah. And that's that. You know, you are still planning for the future. You're still looking. You're still. You know, futuristically, I'll look in, but at the same time, you're like, it's all about now, because if I don't do this now, there will be no future. Right. So, yeah, that's how I kind of look at this whole business of theolo- theological ecology. You know, we got to take care of the world we live in right now. Otherwise, the words of Revelation might come true faster, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which some people want it to happen that way. They may like, and I'm tired of waiting. I want it at the end. So let's mess up this world and force God's hand. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I think God is a little bit smarter than that, and um, uh, we occasionally, you know, He corrects our course with crazy, weird diseases that make everyone stay home and not drive their cars and pollute the whole world <laughs> with <laughs> things like that. So, and they're actually, people, you know, the the I think the a lot of people who are concerned with environment are voicing this idea, like, yeah. hey, there's a positive benefit to this whole outbreak that we have because we're not driving places all of a sudden the emissions are down all of a sudden you know things are being restored to how they should have been in the beginning because we're not there to mess it up yeah and the whole idea that the earth will heal itself if we get out of the way and yeah if we if we get yeah. out of the way that's 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 the conflict you know and, and so it but if we choose not to get in the way to begin with of course that would be better yeah ideally <laughs> I love that you mentioned the first part of Genesis, the creation narratives and the humanity kind of created of this realm, from this realm, for this realm. And the very end of Revelation has a lot of parallels with Genesis 1 and 2, the Revelation 21, 22. So what do you think with the way that the editing of the book has come about, we're ending with quite a big grandiose vision. What is it that 
the the current audience of Revelation when it was written down, and then our audience too. What can we learn about God, His kingdom, and Him being on the throne that can come out of those chapters? I I have a lesson that I learned that I will share, and this is a lesson that I keep learning through the prophets, and I keep learning it, you know, from the Torah through the prophets and all the way into the Revelation is that basically God is in business of restoration. He doesn't wipe out and start new. What he does is he takes something broken and he fixes it. And that's a big theological concept for a lot of people to embrace because we have some facets of theology where they say, you know, it's all new, brand new, completely different, nothing like what we had before. You know, here's my car, smash it, I go buy a new one. Start from a, where what I see is restoration. Yes, there is decline. Yes, everything seems to be beyond hope. But then God comes in and brings life to it. You know, these bones shall live. I mean, I mean, I can go on forever and ever, but you, you know that throughout the prophets, it's all about restoration. Yes, yes you're going to go into exile, but you are going to come out. And you're gonna come out different people. You're gonna come out stronger. Yes, you're gonna to go to Egypt, a small group of family, a small little family, but you're gonna come out a whole nation of people. Yes, you're gonna come out of slaves. I'm gonna to have to work with you for hundreds of years to get you out of this whole crazy idolatry thing. But eventually, you're gonna get it. If it's gonna take another, you know, uh, expulsion, if it's gonna take another subjugation by some other people, but eventually, I'm gonna get you where I want you to be. And so, there's it's always a cycle of. Up and down, up and down, kind of like, you know, to use the language of geography, which I know you love, it's the mountaintop and valley, mountaintop and valley. That's what we do all the time. You know, you get the fresh, fresh air on top of the mountain, then you go into the, that valley and maybe it's not so nice. Uh, and then you can you merge back again. So I see that. And so to me, Revelation ends with a mountaintop. You know, that's what, he, that, that's what it ends with. And that's why, again, it plays to our sensibility of feeling restored at the end because that's how it begins so uh the story is cohesive that's my lesson that i take away is that god is in business of restoration well that is a beautiful spot to end on thank you and just want to reiterate to everyone listening the significance of this course and all of these examples and issues that we were just talking about, you dive into and you talk about in a lot greater detail. So there's so much more to learn just by sitting down and, and watching yeah. and participating and engaging all these different extra biblical texts and imagery and just trying to figure out the books, the book better in its own context and then yeah. what it can mean for us now. It's yeah. challenging. It's all it's all in bits and pieces. Remember, I mean, the courses that we teach are just there's just a few hours long. But what goes into them, if you actually are to engage material outside of class, then there's no limit to how far you know this information can benefit you and how much you can grow and 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 develop yourself. You know, what we can do in a few short hours is really give people information and give people a way of thinking about it. Set them on a trajectory. Set them on a course. Uh, and, and that becomes a pattern that I want, you know, the way I teach is I teach people how to learn. That's my philosophy. I believe that if I can show you the way, then the rest of the way you can walk by yourself. Thank you for listening in and being curious about the world of the Bible. 
Next week, we dive into poetry and worship. You do not want to miss it. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then spread the word and tell your family and friends to listen as well. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds that you hear. If you like what you hear in this podcast, you will love the content in Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on Jewish context and culture. Register now at IsraelBibleCenter.com. See you next week.